0: You'll announce it's co sponsored with Hedda Co
1: sponsored with I think when I introduce you, I'll say it's I'm not saying it's not sponsored with Anyway, You can say It's Christmas by
0: the way. You can't say that. I, I think it's nice to say it. Yeah. Okay,
1: guys, if you come in as quick as you can, we might actually get started now. Um, so do sit down, find a space as we go along. Thank you so much for everyone to come to this event. My name is Stig Abel, I'm the editor of the Times Literary Supplement a weekly journal of literature and culture based in London with a a keen interest in the United States. This event is sponsored by the TLS and PEN America. So we're really glad to be here. It's a total delight to discuss the issue of free speech, which never seems to go away. As I edit a literary magazine, I thought I'd begin things with a literary angle, so turn to the poet Milton, the author of Paradise Lost. And During the Civil War in Britain, he wrote a polemic against government attempts to license free speech called... Era of Pataga, which is named after a hill in Athens. And in it he said this, which has continued to resound, give me the liberty to know, to utter, and to argue freely according to conscience above all liberties. But before we get misty-eyed, though, he also said this, those which otherwise come forth, if they be found mischievous and libelous, the fire and the executioner will be the timeliest and the most effectual remedy that can follow. So he was thus the godfather of... I believe in free expression, but... which has been active as a brigade ever since. Because as we're going to discuss over the next 50 minutes, free speech is never in practice absolute. The question before us today is how much it should be championed over other rights, especially in universities. And those rights might include the right not to be offended, but also the right to live free from abuse and intolerance, to live safely and happily. This week, Berkeley hosted the right-wing commentator Ben Shapiro and had to tighten security and offer counselling to those traumatised by his presence. This is what the provost said. We're deeply concerned about the impact some speakers may have on individual's sense of safety and belonging. No one should be made to feel threatened or harassed simply because of who they are or what they believe. This week, too, Harvard disinvited Chelsea Manning as a visiting fellow at its Institute of Politics. Is that evidence that Harvard is not a place where ambiguities can be discussed, Or is it a place where CIA pressure can be quickly brought to bear? And in August 2016, the Dean of Students at Chicago sent a letter to incoming freshmen and said this, our commitment to academic freedom means that we do not support so-called trigger warnings. We do not cancel invited speakers because their topics might prove controversial. And we do not condone the creation of intellectual safe spaces where individuals can retreat from ideas and perspectives at odds with their own. 152 members of the university signed a letter criticising him for (coughs) expressing that opinion. So how far should we prioritise the need for safety and security within universities? I once went to give a talk at Oxford University in England and I was asking students at an event about trigger warnings and one member of the faculty talked about the impossibility of teaching Shakespeare without issuing warnings and when I left there was a complaint that the discussion about trigger warnings had not been prefaced by a trigger wall (laughs) and so we do need to try and find a way I think societally how we preserve safe spaces how important they are and so we're going to consider is there a risk that safe spaces are becoming segregated spaces do we want balkanization within our schools well to help us answer all of that I'm joined by two people and hopefully a third who will silently enter as the debate continues but uh, they're all eminently qualified to discuss this Jelani Cobb has contributed to The New Yorker since 2012, becoming a staff writer in 2015, one of the great jobs, surely, in all of journalism. His most recent book is called The Substance of Hope, Barack Obama, Hello! and The Paradox of Progress. He's also a professor at Columbia <laughs> Journalism School. Michelle Goldberg, Entering the Room with a Lamb, is an author and, as of tomorrow, I think, a columnist at The New York Times. So congratulations to her. Thank her you. first book was called Kingdom Coming, The Rise of Christian Nationalism. Her next was called The Means of Reproduction, Sex, Power and the Future of the World. So she's <laughs> unafraid of tackling pretty substantial topics. And alongside her here in the middle is Suzanne Nossel, the Executive Director of PEN America, which is also sponsoring this event. Suzanne has had senior roles in hugely important organisations, including Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International, as well as serving as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for international organisations. She also writes for lots of people as well. So the format... Today will be this, our speakers will talk over some of the issues, and at the end we'll take questions and observations from you. One thing you'll notice, despite everyone looking so youthful and lovely, none of us are currently students at US universities, so if there are any students in today with their own sense of what safe spaces are like on campus, then please do at the end uh, ask questions and offer your thoughts. So let's start by asking the, the panel in turn, if I may, do we believe the first principle, is free speech significantly under threat? On campuses or more broadly? July.
2: Oh. <clears throat> First I have to say good afternoon and uh, thank you for the invitation. Uh, I am uh, a once upon a time a Brooklynite, um, now a Harlemite, but I come back down to visit every so often. and, and um, I'm very happy to be here with you all today. Uh, and so, sure, uh, I think safe, uh, free speech is under threat. Uh, I don't think it's under threat on college campuses. <laughs> I think the Preeminent threat to free speech in this country uh, resides at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, um, and we've seen this is not just kind of rhetorical. This is not simply playing to people who I feel might be in my same uh, left progressive sliver of the universe. I think objectively, we've not seen uh, a president referring to the media uh, as the quote enemies of the people, kind of. Retrofitting uh, antique Stalinist language uh, into a 21st century uh, demagogic uh, presidency, uh, and for us to actually grapple with what that means—the daily drip, drip, drip of uh, political assaults against the press—I uh, think is something that we should be very concerned with. And I think. When we look at the way in which this conversation about uh, free speech on campuses is held uh, very often what I've noticed uh, about the kind of reactionary movements is that they tend to drape their uh, agendas in the virtues of democracy uh, and and what I mean by that is saying that you are upholding one principle of democracy but you are actually seeking to dismantle another fundamental principle of it uh, I think the the example that stands out to me most notably is uh, the kind of voter uh, suppression, uh, excuse me, uh, voter integrity commission that <laughs> they have now, uh, in which they are allegedly attempting to make sure that our, our votes, that our elections, are untainted, but having no concern for the number of people who are finding it much more difficult to actually participate in democracy through voting. I think the same thing happens with free speech. That when we are looking at the conversation around free speech. Uh, it is not. Uh, that is actually a stand-in uh, for a much more nefarious set of concerns that would not garner public attention in the way that, uh, in the way that uh, free, saying free speech would. And as a, as a quick example of that, uh, it's worth noting that the recent spate of neo-Nazi uh, events and uh, far-right-wing events uh, have been billed as free speech events. Uh, and uh, it should also be noted that we saw lots of people who were in that kind of part of the world, a part of the uh, ideological spe- spectrum, uh, defending Milo Yiannopoulos on the grounds of free speech. Uh, whether his, it was uh, racism or sexism or uh, xenophobia, anti-immigrant bias, any of these things that uh, he was promulgating with uh, his, uh, his speeches, those things were being defended uh, under the name of free speech, as opposed to the other kind of subsequent issues, but should he be
1: excluded? We'll come to. Him, should he be excluded from from making those types of <coughs> often stupid as well as inflammatory uh, comments?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think that like the virtue of democracy is that everyone has the right to be stupid in their own terms and publicly, uh, and I think the stupidity is its own indictment. Yeah. That notwithstanding, I don't think that's what the concern was because when he began making statements that people were uncomfortable with about child molestation. All of a sudden that became something that was indefensible. They left the issue with the principle of free speech, but th- in theory, if they'd been concerned about this, they should have been out there saying, well, Milo has the right to talk about uh, things that make us uncomfortable, like child molestation, and we'll defend his right to do that. But the opposite is what happened.
1: Uh, Suzanne Nossel, do you, do, you, do you blame Trump for, for, for how free speech ideas have been wrongly articulated on campus? Do you think it, 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 we, we rock from the head down, uh, as a
0: I think he's made it worse. I mean, we did a report that we issued last fall, just about a year ago, called and Campus for All, Diversity, Inclusion, Free Speech at U.S. Universities, documenting these rising tensions and pressures between the drive to make the campus a more inclusive, equal environment, open to all students from all kinds of backgrounds, making sure they really can learn and feel comfortable uh, and, and accommodated at the university but also arguing that those changes in that ev- necessary evolution of the university should not and must not come at the expense of robust protections for free speech and academic freedom, because it's our view that the two sides on this debate too often talk past each other, and those who are demanding so, uh, more inclusivity uh, and social change and those who are defending free speech need to come together and can come together. So... I think really? un, under, I, I, that's fine. That's mm-hmm. my, you know, It's I'm not saying it's easy, mm-hmm. but uh, I
2: think fundamentally... No, I think we're talking about racism and sexism. Like, I think people who are concerned about racism and sexism are not going to come together with people who are interested right. in promulgating right. racism and sexism.
0: I don't disagree with you, Jelani, but here's what I would say. I mean, you pointed this out. Not all people who cloak themselves in the language of free speech come in peace. And I think what has happened, especially over the last... Few months is this, uh, you know, those who are advancing, whether it's a racist or a sexist or an anti gay agenda, calling themselves and claiming the mantle of free speech uh, advocacy, this free speech week at Berkeley, which is you know, really about a particular political agenda. I think the danger there that we see is there's a whole rising generation of students who are becoming alienated from the concept of free speech because they see it being invoked only to protect ideas and speech on the other side that they see as offensive. And I think that's a real risk. What we're trying to point out is that free speech is for all of us. You know, you need free speech if you're going to challenge the administration, if you're going to challenge a professor. You depend on those protections in order to be able to assert your views. And so we've got to reclaim free speech as, you know, uh, a treasured value, you know, not belonging to the right or the left, but to all of us. And so, you know, that's that's the angle we come from.
1: Michelle, do you think this is a new... Is it a new problem, is it a new issue that we're resting now, is it has it been ever thus, do you feel?
3: Well, I mean, I think these things flare up from time to time, but we're in <clears throat> a specific, um, I think the dynamic has become particularly toxic with, you have this, uh, this dynamic, and I don't know how you break it out, how you break out of it, because there is, on the one hand, this generation gap about free speech as a first principle or an absolute value, right? I think that there are a lot of people younger than me who think that safety or inclusion or diversity or tolerance are more important than, you know, letting the Nazis march on Skokie, for example, which was the kind of civil libertarianist tradition that I grew up in. Mm-hmm. And And I wonder if part of the reason some of them think that is because Fascism really does seem closer than it ever has before, and so you know it was one thing to make an argument that we should l- let the Nazis march when you ne- when you couldn't imagine that somebody who was only a couple of steps removed from them would be in the White House. You know now I think the there's a reason that 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 these ten- that people are much more alarmed about the mainstreaming of these ideas and that people feel such an intense um, need to kind of hold the line on what is acceptable because part of what Steve Bannon and the rest of the right are doing very consciously is trying to expand the um, realm of what can be said in public and decent society, right? That's what he means when he says politics are downstream from culture. But I think we're in a really bad place where for a lot of really alienated young men, the site where you can be transgressive, where you can kind of throw off the norms of polite society, where you don't have to second guess everything you say, you can be your true self, if they feel like that's the right, and I think that that's something that the, you know, people like Milo Yiannopoulos are very good at playing on, and that kind of, you know, university culture becomes the culture of Towing around things and strictures and watching your words, and, Mm -hmm. you know, I think that in as much as the right is able to be the kind of swaggering rule-breaker, it's going to, I think it's going to keep attracting a lot of these alienated young men, and then the more they push, the more people, the more kind of response they get from, um, you know, from the kind of trigger trigger warning left or whatever, um, the more they feel. Again, they like, I don't think it's, it's not right when they say know, we're the new punk rock, but I think they're getting some of that same kind of like It does their work for
1: them is what you're saying. Yeah. If, 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 you, if you pander to what they believe a stereotype is then it, it does their work for them. So the interesting question if you want to hold the line against fascists do you invite them in and argue them or do you push them out? Seems to me to be one of the the, the questions here. What do you think, John? Well,
2: so I think there are a, a couple of things that are kind of implicit in this um, and kind of the other side of um, Michelle's point is that There is the very real, we we know this, that democracy uh, can be undermined democratically. Uh, And so uh, to kind of use the uh, kind of threadbare at this point comparison, uh, but unfortunately still relevant, we're talking about Hitler being elected uh, and not seizing power. Uh, So the idea of uh, how we combat uh, these uh, fascist movements I don't think that we have a full picture of what anti-democracy looks like, that we can only conceptualize it, or in some ways we can only conceptualize it as a kind of robust and laissez-faire almost approach to free speech. But someone who has studied the history of race in this country can tell you very easily that there is a whole anti-democratic tradition in this country that was enhanced by the First Amendment. Uh, And what I mean by that is simply this. In uh, 1915, when Birth of a Nation was released, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois and the NAACP, uh, and uh, William Monroe Trotter, uh, the uh, civil rights leader, all of them wanted this film to not be shown. And within the NAACP even, uh, which was a fledgling organization then just a few years old, there was an internal debate saying, do we really want censorship? Now, this was not a kind of abstract academic question, uh, because Birth of a Nation was directly responsible for the rebirth of the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, And this is not a, you know, should I be able to say this? It is directly related to these forces that are lynching black people, and saying that when you have a hierarchical society, even civil liberties can be deployed in ways that reinforce that hierarchy. If we wanted to know the history of this country, we would know that. If we were willing to look at the history of this country, that would be apparent to us. And so when we're saying, you know, are you in favor of the First Amendment, of course you are. But I also think that are we in favor of everything else that contributes to what we call a healthy democracy? So to answer your point, when, we, when they saw Charlottesville, the city of Charlottesville requested tried everything they could to prevent that gathering from happening. Uh, And they said, this is not a matter of free speech, that this is a matter of intimidating the public, and these people are really interested in creating a violent atmosphere and so on. And they were knocked down, I think, three times in court. Uh, And the ACLU defended the right of uh, these far-right groups to organize. And then once they got together, they did exactly what one would have expected, which is that they gathered around a church with a bunch of people inside, and they all had torches. Uh, And so anyone, again, if we had an inkling of understanding about how anti-democratic the history of this country has been, especially around matters of race, knew that this is exactly where something like this would lead. So all I'm saying is that we should be mindful of an array of threats to democracy, not a singular one.
4: Uh,
1: I guess the question that follows, for people... (laughs) Do you trust young people as a whole, people if we're talking specifically about the campuses or society as a whole, to effectively self-regulate this? Because this is the point that I think that Jelani's making. That Sometimes you have to take absolute steps to limit freedoms because you can't trust society to regulate itself. Michelle, do you think that's possible with students? Should they, should they be freer to at least make these judgments themselves?
4: Um, that's a good
3: question and I guess it kind of depends on what sort of judgments you're talking about, right? Like should they be able to keep speakers that they don't like off their campus, should they be able to make certain demands of their professors? I mean, I'm sympathetic to professors I've spoken to who feel like they have to walk on eggshells in front of their students, who feel worried that they're going to say the wrong thing and be brought up on a Title IX complaint. You know, I think that, you know I, I had a lot of criticisms of Laura Kipnis' book, but I but it was still you know, kind of a kafka thing that she had to go through this disciplinary procedure for an article that she wrote in the Chronicle of Higher Education. And so, and and I also think that I don't, here's something I don't trust. I don't trust that any kind of speech restrictions that we decide to allow against the right will only be used against the right. I mean, particularly when the left is not in power in this country, you know? And so, you. and it's actually true that we've, a lot of the, um, a lot of the examples of kind of really cra- campus crackdowns on free speech—they oh, don't get as much attention. But there's, you know, a scholar. Um, there, you, you hear about left-wing scholars all the time who either lose their jobs for saying something intemperate about, you know, Trump or white people. I mean, basically Tucker Carlson on Fox News. You know, because he doesn't want to write about Trump making deals with Democrats. This is what he airs. You know, when he's not talking about dirty gypsies. He's talking about somebody you know, said something at East Tennessee, whatever, and like let's rile up the whole country in response. And so, again, my fear is that once you start temporizing about the value of free speech, it becomes harder to demand that it be upheld as an absolute principle um, when it's the right trying to shut up the left.
1: Suzanne, is there an intellectual risk here, that the idea of safe spaces inherently is difficult for people who want to explore all sorts of ideas even to reject them that the, the unwanted corollary and maybe it's a price worth paying is you end up with institutions where risk is completely removed from the equation and so intellectually there is a price to pay here
0: well, I think you know some versions of safe space are really just another term for freedom of association of course you have the right to get together with a group of people who agree with you on who to vote for or who share your Values or love a certain author, whatever might bring you together, you know, with a group of like-minded people, uh, you know, for a meal, for a meeting. That's different from declaring a whole uh, campus or even a whole dormitory or dining hall a safe space for a certain set of ideas and saying an alternative set of ideas is unwelcome there. Yeah, we have laws that protect people against harassment and threats, and I think that's very important. I mean, if people are are being targeted, if they're uh, you know, being personally attacked in the environment where they live, they can't learn. That's not a healthy university environment. I think it's the responsibility of the university to protect students against that. Uh, you know, but at the same time, you know, being an open space for all ideas. So I think the university can create the opportunity for safe spaces. Students can find those spaces, safe spaces. You should know when you walk into one. You shouldn't find yourself you know, suddenly sitting at a table and, and, and discovering that you know, because you think a certain way, uh, you know, that's out of bounds. I think that does undercut the pl- you know, the role of the university as a forum to encounter things that are difficult, that are challenging. You know, I think Jelani's right that we have to be attentive to some very real dangers that are kind of, you know, that we haven't seen in our lifetime around uh, marginalization of particular communities, rising authoritarian tendencies, and I think turning a blind eye to that is a big mistake. But at the same time, Empowering the university, empowering particularly this government, empowering social media platforms to police and regulate speech, to draw lines, uh, you know, to decide what is out of bounds. I think surrenders our rights and will end up being used in ways, uh, you know, that are the opposite of, of what uh, you know what we in, here in this room might uh, be aiming for.
2: I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure it's that complicated, quite honestly, because I think we're using safe space in a way in, in that is not common to how I've understood it on college campuses. Uh, One, anyone who's been in my classroom, I always say that if you know what I actually think at the end of the class, then it means I failed. Um, As a matter of fact, just last week, um, I did my favorite exercise, uh, which is that you know I had, and this is in my opinion writing class, uh, and so opinion writing, everyone has opinions by definition, self-selection, and so I have them kind of pick aside of a controversial issue, uh, whether it's DACA or you know, Confederate monuments or building a border wall, any of these things, and tell them to go for it. You know, the beginning of the class and they are writing their finest prose and you know, bringing out their best arguments and so on, uh, and then we kind of go through the class and we talk you know, about a whole bunch of other things. If I say, okay, shred that up and write the opposing argument honestly and sincerely you have never seen that much fidgeting <laughs> and shifting. It's physically uncomfortable, but you have to engage the opposite perspective, or the perspective that is ninety degrees askew from. I mean, I think that this is what you know. The beautiful element, the most beautiful element of universities, uh, remains. But that's not what people, I think, are Has talking about.
3: Has anybody ever complained
2: about that? No. Well, they've complained about it being difficult. Right. And but one person said, "Can I write in favor of the border wall without?" Writing something racist, and I was like, "That's the question." I'm not. Gonna, I mean, I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to help you here. Um, but what if they
1: said to What if they said to you, "You, you, you you're making me espouse a view I don't want to do. That makes me uncomfortable."
2: That's exactly the point. Right. So you'd be, and, and do you think To me, it would be like telling your personal trainer, "Like, I'm uncomfortable right now." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and would your university back you up? Uh, I suspect we're saying that (laughs) I asked you to write an exercise that was difficult. I'd probably be on pretty safe territory, Um, but I think the other side of it when we talk about safe spaces is much more akin to what we think about in terms of workplace culture. Like it's very clear that you know uh, you don't walk into your workplace generally and refer to everybody by four-letter words, you know, because in most workplaces that would be frowned upon, um, or there are kind of sexist behaviors that we think of, or uh, culturally insensitive behaviors, or any of these other kinds of things that we know are not appropriate. And we're saying simply, as I un- have understood it always to be used, is that we want to create a kind of common sense of community around what are acceptable and unacceptable ways of interacting. Now, there are people who feel like the inability to Marginalize other people is, in fact, marginalization themselves. People who confuse that with marginalization, and I think this is where this conversation comes from. It's a question of intolerance and intolerance of the intolerant.
1: Can um, you say it simply? I'd it's like to hear Michelle and Suzanne then on this. What are the criteria for no platform? Because what we're saying is, people have the right to have free freedom of expression. They can go off and wherever they, they want to talk, and they can go on social media and blather on, but it's the responsibility of institutions not to give them a platform sometimes. Do you think there's a straightforward criteria? People espousing a certain view should happily be no-platformed with no risk of being accused uh, of restricting free speech.
3: Um, are you saying, is is there a criteria or could there be a criteria? Could yeah, <laughs> like I, I, either one, could, so what should the criteria be? Oh, I, don't, I mean, I don't, that seems like it would be a, a long project to yeah. try to elucidate those criteria. I mean, I think that right now, we don't have strong criteria, which is what makes this whole thing so fraught like for example, you know, Ben Shapiro spoke at Berkeley earlier this week. I mean i don't like Ben shapiro I don't agree with anything that he says, but he's not a, his, his views aren't dangerous and and to be honest they're worth understanding because mm-hmm. they reflect like powerful political tendencies in this country and so the but he he is treated i think in as being. Inseparable from, say, like a Richard Spencer or Mm -hmm. a Milo Yiannopoulos. I mean, Milo, in some ways, is an easier case. I think you can say that he shouldn't be speaking on campuses because he harasses individual students. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's kind of part of his shtick. And And intent,
1: perhaps, does intent play a part? Where where you, he's designing, he's deliberately trying to cause trouble. You can, you can make a judgment about intent.
3: I would think so. I mean, I would hope so. But I also, but no platforming. You know, I do worry about that it just kind of expands and expands and expands and people, you know, who have little bits of, people who feel Mm -hmm. like they have very little power in this world for good reason, you know, find a venue in which they can exercise some power and, you know, are kind of likely to push that as far as it can go because they feel marginalized and they feel victimized and they, they deserve to have those feelings. But you know, kind of trying to get make sure that Republicans, you know, that Condoleezza Rice can't speak on your campus is not necessarily, I think, um, it might be the only venue that you could act, that you can exercise power. But it's not, it's neither kind of useful for advancing progressive ideas. I just, as somebody who writes about the right a lot, you just cannot overstate how gleeful the right is whenever one of these incidents breaks out. I mean, to them, it is just not just that they see it as a recruiting tool, again, for, like, alienated young men, and I think you can't overstate how deliberate the kind of recruitment of alienated young men on chat boards and um, video games and all this kind of stuff. I mean, Steve Mann in in the book Devil's um, Devil's Bargain talks about this kind of deliberate seeing these, mass of networked people as a possible source of political energy if they could just be channeled in the right direction. And so, you know, I, I wish that progressives would stop giving them gift-wrapped, um, mm-hmm. gift-wrapped presents.
1: Suzanne, what, what do you, what, what do you, it can't be a, straightforward.
0: There's, a, there's an important distinction to be drawn in terms of, uh, a campus where basically there's a liberal policy with respect to any student group being able to invite a speaker to campus. You know, if that's the policy and somebody is invited, I think, you know, for the university to then disinvite that individual is a pretty serious step. You know, it's viewpoint specific, and they're imposing, uh, you know, a set of ideas on the whole campus. And I think that's. You know, that should be the, the, the very rare exception. I think it's a very different thing when you're talking about a commencement speaker or an honorific, and it's the university putting their imprimatur on an individual, saying this per- is a person of esteem, you know, that we recognize in this way. I think those decisions need to be made in a very considered way. And, you know, I think it's 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 terribly... You know, awkward and I think embarrassing for Harvard to rescind that and also pretend that they didn't recognize that calling yeah. somebody a fellow at the Kennedy School was a mark of distinction and an honor. I mean, how absurd. This is, you know, this is what the Kennedy School and Harvard
3: oh, is cool. open, you know, But,
1: normally, but yeah. I
0: think it's
2: rescinding, Chelsea, Manning, in, in rescinding Chelsea Manning's invitation,
3: though, I think is a good example of the fact that this is these, you know, when you legitimize these tactics, they are, not just going to be used um, against the far right and in a lot of ways are probably more likely to be used against the left. I mean, it's one of the, I think, biggest threats to free speech on college campuses is, is the attempt to criminalize BDS, right? I mean, and so but if you're but the argument against doing that is that this is a space for free speech even if you know some part of your students believe that this is hateful and triggering and all the rest
2: but i I think okay i think that i'm I'm going back to this distinction between things we don't like and things that are actually people have reason to feel threatened by Mm -hmm. and and i think that i'm not in favor of anyone being sheltered from speech that they don't like um, or or that you disagree with or even that offends you but i am talking about the kind of blind spot and the ability to recognize the actual kind of legacy of the things that we're talking about but we we would we're pretending that we don't know where donald trump trump came from Mm -hmm. but there's a genealogy in this country that nurtured and sustained those thoughts uh, until they could reach the pinnacle of power that they have achieved now uh, and that they could pluck someone like steve bannon and place them as a senior advisor, and, and Gorka, and Miller, and uh, you know, whatever uh, kind of reactionary elements that, that have found themselves void by this. We know that where this comes from. And so I think that that is a kind of different thing. Right. That said, I don't think that, uh, and to Suzanne's point, I think you should amplify that 10,000 times. Commencement speakers are supposed to be boring. <laughs> you are, there was a statistic that came out that said that most people did not remember this commencement speaker at their graduation, to which I said exactly, <laughs> you know. But I think it's the point, because you specifically because you are endorsing that person, mm-hmm. that you should go for the person who's just like, oh, I, you know. Right. Or let the I, students pick them. Right, I created a farm and I give out, you know, crops to, you know, hungry children. So is Chelsea like, Manning
1: a free speech issue?
2: So I don't know all the specifics of that, but I think it, it seemed to me, on the face of it, that, that that was what Harvard did. And also, this was the same time that it came out that they had rescinded mm-hmm. their in their acceptance of the woman, African American yeah. woman, who was uh, accepted into a PhD Jones, program yeah. in the history in history, right? Uh, because she had a, a very troubling history. She was a person who spent 20 years in prison for um, killing her own child, but. That wasn't why they rescinded it. They rescinded it because they were afraid of what other people would say, mm-hmm. um, which I think is so uh, in, so a, in defense. I
1: was, was talking to a student and, and they said to me, when well, I was talking about coming on this, and they said it's not the students that's the worry, it's the parents who often are paying the money for it. And, and universities are frightened of parents who might say I'm paying $50,000 uh, for my child to come to this school. I can't believe you're allowing X to come and speak there. Do you, do you think that the, the concern around this Comes from people outside the, the university, the
4: parents. Uh,
0: there's all kinds of pressures. I mean, there are pressures from donors, uh, media pressure, and you know the people talking about this Michelle Jones case were very open about being afraid of Fox News, mm-hmm. you know, getting a hold of the fact that she got, uh, you know, funded for her participation in this graduate program. But I think it really is the role of the university to stand for these larger values, recognizing mm-hmm. yes, you're going to be buffeted by a whole range of pressures, and there are going to be people who don't like it. You know, their job is not to have universal. Uh, I can't I claim and be loved. Uh, but is there is evidence
1: t- that they, they are frightened? I mean, the one of the things yeah. They said it. They said yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, they're yeah, very, you know, right. kind of open so about... It's, it's, they should be like that, but they're not. I mean, it, it, it's heartening that Jelani will be, whose will, 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 great lessons will be supported by his, his, his university. But there's a risk here, isn't it? As Harvard has shown. They say, we made this decision to have Chelsea Manning. Someone objects. 45 seconds later, they've rescinded it. And is there not a role for, for universities to take difficult decisions and stick by them?
0: I think there absolutely is and that you know it's something we need to put uh, you know as much pressure from you know whether it's the left or the right when they make these decisions where you know, it, I mean, the, the problem with the Chelsea Manning thing. I mean, theoretically, they said she could still come mm. and speak, but that was sort of a, a you know an after the fact right. kind of mm-hmm. offhand. You know, what they should do is say, you know, we absolutely <sighs> right, want we her to come. And, we made this decision. We made this invitation. Yeah, she's got a you know she has an important perspective. Whether you agree or accept what she did or not, no matter your views, she's part of the public discourse. And uh, you know, to disinvite her in this way, when it seems pretty clear she's not going to go there, her views are not going to be heard you know, I think it's a real problem, and especially to do it under pressure, under those circumstances.
2: Can can I give a kind of quick point here? Uh, One of the things I think that's kind of illustrative of how we are conflating a lot of things, uh, a lot of different things together in this conversation, which is that uh, when Yale had the issue about free speech on campus, uh, the students who felt that, and and also the uh, faculty member, uh, who felt that free speech was being, uh, I guess, some in some way, impaired, they were responding to an email which suggested maybe you don't you wear blackface on Halloween.
3: But that wasn't, I mean, I read that email, too. I mean, it, I think it said more than that, you shouldn't go as any living person. It, it seemed to, Yeah. I mean, I once went for Halloween as that girl who carved the backwards B into her cheek. Um, I feel like that would have been under that policy, mm-hmm. um, maybe I should But have we should be able way. to draw <laughs> a distinction,
1: shouldn't we? And that seems to be the conflation that goes on within universities, not just this conversation, but in universities themselves, We uh, something like that versus someone who's blacking up, that, that, that should be a relatively clear line to draw, perhaps. But I mean, been. I
2: don't think that, I mean, what, even if you're saying this, right, okay, any living person or whatever, there are lots of other things that you can do that people may mm-hmm. not like. But there's no way I think that you, we can say that we can't tell, first off, the marginal, Numbers of students of color who are on these campuses Mm -hmm. in the first place as a legacy of these institutions that have a history of Explicitly forbidding these students to come to this place and then when there is some um, Really inconsequential number who managed to find their way to the campus we say as a uh, kind of fee uh, for your uh, existence in the space You have to tolerate other people marching around in blackface and we're going to call this freedom.
0: Mm -hmm. I don't think it was really about you know I think everybody agreed that you know certain costumes that are deliberately or wantonly offensive ought to be out of bounds and it was a question of you know how directive and how prescriptive the university should be in detailing you know chapter and verse of, of different you know costumes and what was and wasn't appropriate in a sense that you know, students could make these decisions and make these judgments for themselves. They might get it wrong at times, but that's part of the experience—like the experience that you well, offer. Of, you know, looking at things through different lenses and learning through interaction with other students. You know what uh, what those boundaries are and should be. And I, you know, you, I think you know, th- I think you could defend the original memo, but I also think there's there's a real case that you know, it was sort of a memo and then another counter-memo, you know, that the intention of the counter-memo was really to, you know, put that responsibility in the hands of students, and that, you know, there's a case for that, that, you know, these are people who are growing up, they're living in a diverse environment, um, they ought to exercise good judgment, but it's not something the university should necessarily prescribe to them.
2: I understand, so we should say, we'll let you all offend the black people until they leave campus, which some of the black students did, until you can figure out that this behavior tends to make the black students leave campus. So, so and I don't say that, I mean, I don't mean to, I'm not saying this, but literally there were students leaving the campus because of this. Uh, and when you talk about, when you go into these institutions that have these problems with retention, one of the key things they say is that students feel alienated, students of color feel alienated on their campuses. I know this is somebody who speaks frequently. Every institution I go to, public, private, college, university, Midwest, South, West Coast, wherever, there is a cluster of black students who say, I feel completely alienated in this place. And I understand exactly why they feel that way. And, say, and, saying, and also the other thing is the consistency of it. What is this, September 16th, 17th? We'll say in six weeks, we'll have some university somewhere where it'll be Halloween and someone will be walking around in blackface because it happens every year. It's not that we're saying, okay, this is something that happened once. It's kind of a pattern wherein this happens again and again and again and again. And then when people are confronted by it, we are saying, oh, it's politically correct. You're trampling upon my rights. And so the final point I'll say about this is that I'm not arguing against free speech I'm saying that we have all sorts of other things that we recognize. That if we take a kind of uh, unregulated, completely unregulated approach to them, they wind up with ends that we don't intend. The Second Amendment is a great example of that. The Fifth Amendment uh, and the property uh, rights, the due process clause of the Fifth Amendment, is wonderful until people used it as a basis for preventing the emancipation of slaves that you can use democratic principles in undemocratic ways. That's the basic point that I'm making. And I think that we have to be cognizant of that. And it, it's not a matter of, of uh, curtailing things. It's like, how do you strike exquisite balance? These are not absolutes, but we're trying to find a balance between competing ideals.
1: And I suspect the question is, can you trust the person or people running these institutions to strike that balance? And there'll be moments where, where they get it wrong. I, I'm conscious um, I, we've not. To you guys yet? Uh, does anyone want to uh, ask a question? Uh, raise your hands, and someone with a microphone, I believe, will will, uh, will come and find you. Uh, let's go for the person you're nearest <coughs> to, you, and then we'll move around. How are you all doing? Um, so I actually just graduated
5: from the University of Virginia, and I'm from Charlottesville. Uh, I've got a brother. want to go and they want to live their own lives, and they don't really have to worry about their privilege or the problems of other people. And then there are a lot of people who, as you say, feel alienated by their pre- the lack of presence of other African Healthy,
1: at' least,
5: we're having
0: I mean I think from penn 's point of view, dialogue between these different groups is kind of at the essence of how we 're going to get past this if we 're ever going to get past I mean we you know one of the first things we did when we issued our report was we brought together a group of the top student leaders from the campus protests from around the country with free speech experts just to kind of talk face-to-face about why it is that people are arguing that free speech protections in some situations, you know, leave people exposed and endangered, you know, why it is that, uh, you know, those who've spent their lives advocating the First Amendment, you know, think that it can offer adequate protection in those circumstances. And we find, like, when people, you know, sit down face-to-face, you know, they might not agree perfectly, but they can be respectful and understand each other. I actually think I watched the Ben Shapiro Mm -hmm. lecture at Berkeley the other night, and, you know, inside that room, he invited people who disagreed with him to come to the front of the line uh, first and ask their questions, and there were a lot of challenging questions, and he answered them. And it was a real exchange, and I think we need more of that, you know, to get away from these you know, showpieces, grandstanding, people coming to parade on campus, uh, you know, cloaking themselves in the mantle of free speech, but just simply to provoke and to instigate and to deliberately anger without any real interest in conversation, give and take empathy, hearing out the other side, learning what is the experience of uh, you know African Americans uh, students on campus. Why is it that they're asking for this? You know, and it was important to know the history of that memo and, there, and you know, Jelani's right, there is a history to it. You know, I think if you understand that history, you know, you don't look at it as a caricature and say, you know, this is preposterous, it's infantilizing, you know, it's students um, you know surrendering their power to the university. There's more to it. You know, and I agree, you know, I think there is more to it. We might come out slightly differently on you know the whole crisis, but I think that kind of dialogue is essential, and we just need to do more of getting people into a room together to have it.
1: Any question? walk past now. Yeah, perfect. Um,
4: this question is in particular for Jelani, but also whoever else wants to answer. Um, I think a lot of the time, i would like to hear what you think about the media narrative around uh, how to define the and who gets to. Lay claim to it. Um, I apologize if this was addressed in the first five minutes. They mm-hmm. didn't let me in. <laughs> um, but, you know, when uh, when students of color, when women, when trans students are made to leave uh, academia, or, for example, even online, when people close their Twitter accounts because they've gotten so harassed mm-hmm. um, that they can't speak in the public comments anymore, um, that to me is a major. Free speech issue, and it has been um, framed that way in the feminist community. But in the uh, corporate media narrative, in particular, you only hear generally about you know Milo's free speech rights and Coulter's free speech rights being taken away when they're being asked to be either accountable for their speech or for not harassing people actively and targeting people with that
1: mm-hmm.
2: speech. Does the media focus on the wrong things? Yeah, I think that's what we've been saying, uh, I think there's. Uh, this kind of conflation, and also people kind of using the most absurd examples—the uh, things that you know you wouldn't find you know defensible at all—people like uh, even the kind of Laura Kipnis situation, uh, where she is being um, you know basically persecuted because she wrote an article that someone um, disagreed with, uh, and I think that also the left is guilty of deploying the term violence in ways that just we deploy it to say, oh, uh, I don't, you uh, didn't speak to me when I saw you today, you did violence to me or something. Like everything has become violence, uh, such that I think that to the extent that I think that some of the left is uh, I think culpable, we've blurred those lines a little bit. But that said, I think we still do have like a fair idea of you know, what is threatening uh, or uh, what is uh, harassment, or you know, what is like? We have you know, laws. We institutions have lots of policies around these things and codes of conduct and behavior. Uh, I don't think it is that hard to see it. But I think what we've done, and to kind of go off topic uh, briefly, we've done in this subject the same thing that we've done with uh, the 2016 election, which is that people who have uh, embraced a kind of demagogic approach to life, and therefore imperiled lots of other elements of democracy, if not democracy, the entire democracy itself. But our re- reaction has to be one of uh, unlimited empathy to say, I'm sorry that you feel bad. You know, like, What was it that caused you to destroy democracy? Um, <laughs> and perhaps we can hug you and move on
1: from there. Uh, we have to leave it. So, Michelle, uh, just to finish with you, you're joining the Times tomorrow. Um, do you think the media covers this issue fairly, responsibly? And then we'll have to wrap it up.
3: I mean, I think that we're. <coughs> it's not covered fairly and responsibly. Is like I said, there's actually a fair amount of targeting of left-wing professors and you know, kind of left-wing movements. And but we're used to a specific narrative of you know, kind of fragile snowflakes can't stand you know, right-wing provocateur. And like I said, I do think that that's real. And even when it is inflated, even when it's kind of blown up past the underlying facts, I don't think you can underestimate how useful that is to the other side. I mean, I often say I covered Trump for a long time. I went to a ton of Trump rallies, and I never heard somebody talk about NAFTA, but people always spoke about being really angry about political correctness and being really angry about they, that they couldn't just say what they wanted anymore. And part of it was that they couldn't, you know, just kind of cavalierly toss off ethnic slurs anymore, and they really resented that. But in as much as there's a feeling that kind of liberals want to exert, you know, this kind of nannying sort of control over people, even where that perception is exaggerated, it creates such a powerful counter-reaction that it's just worth, I think, trying to do what you can, not to, not to foster that dynamic.
1: Well, hopefully today that we've managed to have a narrative that's a little bit more nuanced than that. Let me thank uh, Jelani Cobb, Michelle Goldberg, and that's <laughs> thank you very much for coming. Thank you. Thank, you. thank you, thanks for doing this.
2: Thank you. Michelle, you? Can, I, can I get you in my class? Uh,
3: I'd love to come to your class.
2: We meet on yes, Wednesdays. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um,
3: Okay. I was wondering if I
5: could ask you a question. Sure. I apologize, I came in late. I happen to be um, that was a university professor. Thank you lefty. so much. Thank you. I'm going to come right. Right. Oh it's such a problematic issue in yeah. I, I, yeah. I like saw you, I was, was like, what the, what the hell? What are you doing here? Yeah, you know, I
2: gotta
4: make that fashion late
5: interest. But are you in New York?
2: No, I don't without, live here. I just came in town for the fashion. Yeah, oh, okay. So you're right. in yeah,
4: right. I'm in DC, yeah. DC now. Okay. Right. okay,
2: okay. But um uh, it's glad I'm right. I, you know, I'm glad to see you doing so well. I, I've so been we'll following you now. and I read you in the New Yorker. Okay. Well um glad that you could come out. I really appreciate your perspective. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. I yeah. yes. yes. to
5: see yes. that the, it, like um, the dangers of,
2: of, Vegas, of uh, like, well, which places right. like right. Talk, <laughs> Sorry,
5: the dangers of a, a right. one-sided view that you know there's <laughs> only oh, like that it's only like a problem
2: that's affecting. Yeah, i think you It's
0: it's it's not true. there's culpability on both sides of this.